A word of prayer as we stand. Lord, may our hearts this morning be good soil where the seed of your word can bring forth much fruit to your praise and glory. Amen. Please be seated. Your God is too small, complained a Christian writer called J.B. Phillips over a generation ago. And you know, I'm not sure that much has changed since he wrote a book with that title. Because men and women in every age have a habit of trying to cut down God to their own size, to tame and to domesticate God, to take the God who created us in his image and seek to recreate God in our image. But it's only by recognizing God in his true greatness that we can begin to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And on this morning of Harvest Thanksgiving, I don't know of a better place to turn in Scripture than to Psalm 65 to help us to see God in his greater goodness and wonder and love and for us to respond accordingly. So could you please make sure you have a Bible open at Psalm 65? In the Church Bibles, it's page 580. And let us consider together three aspects of God's greatness as set out in this wonderful psalm. For we see here God being praised as the great welcomer, the great peacemaker, and the great giver. First of all, God the great welcomer in verses 1 to 4. He is, for one thing, the God who hears prayers. Do you see that in verse 2? Oh, you who hear prayer. How we take that simple truth for granted. But just think for a moment. If there were a God, a creator of all things, but who was deaf to our cries and careless about our needs or was only interested in long and eloquent prayers, and not interested in those times when we can only groan and sometimes moan, just think where we would be. We may quickly tire when somebody talks to us longer than we, our patience will allow, but God is never wearied by our prayers. He is a God who hears prayers. And that's one part of what it means for him to be a great welcomer. But another part of God's great work of welcoming is that he is a God who forgives sins. You see that in verse 3. When we were overwhelmed by sins, 
you forgave our transgressions. Now I hate myself for doing this, but I'm going to ask you just to glance down at the bottom of the page. You'll see in a footnote, that verse says, it could read, instead of you forgave our transgressions, it could read you made, you made atonement for our transgressions. And having looked at what the Bible scholars say about this, I'm convinced that that's the correct translation. Atonement includes forgiveness, but it also sets out how and why God forgives our sins, overwhelming as those sins may be. This psalm may well have been written for the original Jewish harvest festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, still held by Jewish believers. Uh, This year it'll be in about, uh, I think, about two and a half weeks' time. But the Feast of Tabernacles came just five days after the Day of Atonement. So no wonder that the psalmist was so mindful of God's atonement for sins when he called people to regather to bless and praise God for the harvest. Now the day of atonement is built on the imagery of sacrifice. The blood of sacrificed animals was sprinkled on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. So to symbolize how God covers by means of sacrifice our sins. Our sins had made a separation between us and our God. And there was nothing that we could have done about it. But God has provided a sacrifice, the blood of which will cover over and make atonement for our sins. Now, at this point, Christian believers, uh, such as ourselves, uh, part company with our Jewish brothers and sisters. Because our Jewish friends still celebrate the Day of Atonement. Again, that will come up in about, uh, in just a few weeks' time. But the Christian Day of Atonement has been achieved once for all in the death of Jesus Christ. The letter of the Hebrews insists on this in many different ways. And in chapter 7 says this, Unlike the other high priests, Christ does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That's the meaning, that's the purpose, and that's the achievement of his death on the cross. And it's that atonement that achieves forgiveness of sins. No matter who you are, young or old, great or small, famous or, in your own eyes at least, insignificant, 
No matter whether you think your sins are relatively trivial or whether you feel your sins to be overwhelming, as mentioned in verse 2, there is no way to God other than through the door that says the forgiveness of sins. We must all come that way. That is the one way through which God welcomes one and all. Or come not at all. The God who forgives our sins by making atonement. And a third aspect of God, the great welcomer, is that he welcomes us into his presence. He doesn't just deal with our sins, he welcomes us into his presence. Do you see that in verse 4? Brought near to dwell in your courts, your house, your holy temple, closer and closer to the place where God is. And then we are filled with the good things of your house. Let us experience the joy of knowing God and we will soon settle the question of whether the church is alive or dead, active or inactive in our own day. David puts this very eloquently and very movingly elsewhere in Psalm 16. You have made known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. There is joy, there is deep joy in coming to know God and dwelling in his presence. God is the great welcomer. Secondly, God is the great peacemaker, verses 5 to 8. Now, when I first looked at these verses, the thing that made the greatest impact on me was the power of God. And so it is near the beginning. It's the God who formed the God you formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength. But we soon learn that God God's power is not coercive, but a peacemaking power. God is the great peacemaker. Look at verse 7, who stilled the roaring of the seas. Can you think of an episode in the Gospels that reflects that truth? Who stilled the storming of the seas? And again, God is not only God of the implacable mountains and of the raging seas. He also, verse 7, stills the turmoil of the nations. Think of the violence, the instability, the tyranny, and the corruption of the nations in all ages. Only God, in his peacemaking power, can bring any kind of order out of this chaos. So let us pray for peace, and let us also make every effort to do what leads to peace, as we are taught in Romans chapter 14. God is the great welcomer. God is the great peacemaker. But now thirdly, God is the great giver. 
verses 9 to 13. And these verses paint a wonderful, wonderfully vivid picture, culminating, do you see, in verses 12 and 13, culminating in this harvest fantasy of the hills and fields dressing up in their finery and having a jolly good party, shouting for joy and singing at the top of their voices. And everything is ascribed to God. You care, you enrich, you provide, you drench, you soften, you bless, you crown. Everything is ascribed to God. Now, of course, God has always called human beings to cooperate. Try that one more time. To cooperate with Him in growing, harvesting, processing, distributing, sharing, and cooking and serving the good gifts of His creation. And so it was at the very beginning. In Genesis 2, we read that God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. That's God's part. But then it also says, the Lord God put the man in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That's our side of the arrangement. Yes, we do have a vitally important part to play in nurturing God's good creation. The late John Stott used to tell the story of a gardener who was showing a clergyman, why do they always pick on clergymen? Sorry, Will. Who was showing a clergyman round the beauty of his garden with its colourful herbaceous borders and its ripe fruit and vegetables. Duly impressed, the clergyman broke out into spontaneous praise to God. The gardener, however, didn't think that God should get all of the credit. (laughs) You should have seen this here garden, he said, when God had it to himself. (laughs) And, of course, he had a point. Nature is what God gives us, and culture is what we do with it. Without a human cultivator, every garden or field quickly degenerates into a wilderness. Nigel, yes, agreed. (laughs) And the other farmers and gardeners among us. We will sing, I think, at the close of our service this morning. We plough the fields and scatter the good seed on the land, but it is fed and watered by God's almighty hand. But, you know, it would not be wrong to sing. God plants the lovely garden and gives the fertile soil, but it is kept and nurtured by man's resourceful toil. But in this psalm, everything is traced back beyond all these secondary causes, all the human effort and skill and labor traced back to its first cause, which is God. Behind all our own endeavors lies the bountiful goodness of our wonderful, loving God. And if in verse 13, inanimate nature shouts for joy and sings over its God-given abundance, will we remain silent? 
when we know that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, from God, the great giver. God then, in this psalm, is the great welcomer. He is the great peacemaker, and he is the great giver. But there is one striking aspect of this psalm that I haven't mentioned yet. I wonder if you've noticed. We seem to miss something out. And it's this. Back in verses 1 to 4, we have this picture of God's people streaming towards Zion, towards Jerusalem, in order to praise God. But that river keeps on breaking its banks and overflowing throughout this psalm. It's not just God's chosen people, the Jewish people, going to Jerusalem. There is a call for the whole earth to bless God for his bounty. Verse 2, to you all men will come. Verse 5, you are the hope of all the ends of the earth. And verse 8, those living far away fear your wonders. From utmost east, that's where the morning dawns, to utmost west, that's where evening fades. God calls forth songs of joy. Now what I ask now in closing, what will impel us to have the same attitude of universal welcoming and peacemaking and giving as our God? Well, we can make a little ladder, I think. And the bottom rung of the ladder of motivation is a sense of our solemn duty to obey God's command to love our neighbour as ourself. But the next rung up the ladder would be a knowledge of the deep necessity. We've been reminded already this morning that the number of refugees in the world is larger now than since before records began. The need is so great. The next rung up the ladder of motivation for us would be an awareness of our great privilege. We have so much, and we have the ability to give so much. What a privilege that is. But at the top of our ladder of motivation is surely this. It's the experience of abounding joy. The joy that permeates this psalm from beginning to end, which will prove to be the most powerful motivator. It is a moral impossibility for a, for a truly thankful soul to be turned in on itself, to have a heart full of praise and yet live a life that is stubbornly selfish. Praise is never, true praise is never a sedative, but it is rather a powerful stimulant. The Puritans, Thomas Watson, said, praise is a soul in flower. And of course, it will not be long before the flower-laden soul matures into a fruit-bearing soul. As Paul says in encouraging the Corinthian Christians to give and give and give again what God has given them. He says, we have, been, we have been enriched in every way so that we can be generous on every occasion. There is joy for us in having received so much from God. 
but even greater joy, our Lord teaches, in giving it back for God, because our Master said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So let us ask ourselves, do we know this God who is the great welcomer? Therefore, as scripture says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Is God the great peacemaker? And have we found peace with God in our own hearts? Then listen to scripture when it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And have we experienced God as the great giver, the one who has richly provided us with everything for our enjoyment? Well then, let us mark and inwardly digest the words of our Saviour. Freely you have received, freely give. Let us pray. Our great God and Saviour, we bless you for the joy that we learn from this psalm of old. We thank you that you have brought us into the clearer and more vivid light, in the light uh, as, we have ne- as we know it in Jesus Christ our Saviour. From this position of great privilege and overflowing joy, may we become godlike in our welcoming in our peacemaking, and in our giving. Amen.